You're on the right channel if you're confused, your eyes are not failing you, and Greg Kelly did not suddenly get better hair. I'm Matt Gates. Thanks for joining us on Greg Kelly Reports. Greg has the night off, and I have the biggest stories driving Washington, D.C. right now. America is restless this Friday evening, heading into Memorial Day weekend. Joe Biden says we have a deal, but details are scarce. And does a deal mean that Biden and McCarthy can deliver the votes? Meanwhile, an economy, the strength of the dollar, and the long-term fiscal health of the most powerful nation on Earth hang in the balance. Also, breaking tonight, he's the most aggressive, best-known Republican attorney general in America. From election integrity to taking on big tech to scaring big pharma, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton has been on a conservative warpath. Despite ongoing investigations by state and federal authorities, Paxton surprised the establishment by crushing no less than George Prescott Bush in the 2022 primary and runoff elections. He then won the general. But tonight, he's in a battle for his political life. Texas House Republicans have issued a report alleging widespread allegations of mismanagement and corruption. Some are even calling for Paxton's impeachment. Is it the biggest scandal in America or yet another effort by feckless Republicans to join with Democrats to neutralize an effective force in American politics? Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton joins me exclusively in moments to react. President Biden sounded optimistic as he departed for Camp David today. With regard to the debt limit, things are looking good, very optimistic. I hope we'll have some clearer evidence tonight before the clock strikes 12 that we have a deal. But it's very close, and I'm optimistic. I'm going to bring you inside the key deal points both sides are fighting for. To create space for the final negotiations, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has revised her default date now to June 5th. But do we trust the team that brought us bank failures, inflation, rising interest rates and economic decline to predict, well, anything at all? Does Biden even know what day of the week it is as he heads off to Camp David? Trusting the Biden team to make economic predictions is like trusting Dick Cheney to be your hunting partner. Not very wise. Would you trust Joe Biden and Janet Yellen with your money more than like Sam Bankman Freed at this point? Who even knows? Just listen to the so-called smartest people in the world totally blowing it on the very thing crushing your family budget today. In the end, it will be transitory. We do expect some transitory price increases. We expect at most transitory inflation. These inflation uh, rises will be transitory. It have caused inflation. I believe that they're transitory. Transitory inflation was indeed transitory. In one respect, it transitioned Nancy Pelosi out of the speakership and it transitioned Republicans into the majority. The fundamental covenant now between House Republicans and American voters is to control spending and inflation. If the sole backstop to the spending frenzy initiated by Democrats and socialists and their fellow Woketopians in Washington is Joe Manchin, well, you see what you get. American decline with no end in sight. Even Manchin himself confesses that the Biden administration has abused its authority and is coloring outside the lines. The president and all of his all of his uh, uh, 
members of his uh, cabinet, they knew exactly why we proceeded with the IRA, Inflation Reduction Act. And as soon as they started implementing it, they didn't hit their goals by January 1. They were supposed to have rules out. And then they started liberalizing, if you will, so they could get more product out, get more money away. Uh, I'm, I'm not encouraged about all of this at all, and I'll do everything I can to prevent it from happening. Tisk tisk, Joe Biden. If printing money made a nation stronger, Zimbabwe would be the most powerful country on the planet. But of course, it doesn't, and they aren't. What allows President Biden to spend in the absence of legal authority? Why? With no votes of the Congress, was he able to functionally nationalize deposits in the banking system? Shouldn't the people's representatives have to take a vote before, I don't know, student loan debt is canceled in this country? Now, hardworking Americans are asked to subsidize the $80,000 degree in intersectional gender studies for their now underemployed Starbucks barista. In a moment, I'll be joined by the smartest economist I know, Stephen Moore. He'll explain what's going to happen next, and he will dispel the Beltway lies. And there are many, believe me. You see, an unlimited credit card begets unmitigated foolishness in our economic policies. Giving Congress unchecked spending authority is less responsible than tossing a handle of whiskey and Joe Biden's Corvette keys to Hunter for a joyride. When the credit card is maxed out, it's a pretty darn good time to evaluate spending habits. This is a lesson first husbands know all too well, and it's one that our nation would be smart to abide. If the debt limit is raised, is the spending really going to meet the needs of our country? Or is it increasingly fueling and funding a government that has lost its way, gone feral, or even worse, turned against our beloved countrymen. When people ask me, how can we cut spending? What would you do without? I point to some of the pork projects that Mitch McConnell teamed up with Nancy Pelosi to authorize. Like U.S. taxpayer funding for training LGBTQ activists in Senegal, or the analysis of critical gender theories in Macedonia, of all places. You actually fund a gay-themed movie festival in Australia and a gay pride parade in Prague. Why can't Prague pay for their own gay pride parade? How proud can you really be if it's someone else footing the bill for these things? The Rainbow Rights Project in the Philippines probably isn't central to America's interests, but you pay for it anyway. $850,000 goes to review the rights of gender-diverse people in Bangladesh. Isn't that interesting? But it's not just abroad where your money is sacrificed on the altar of absurdity. Our friend Rand Paul spends much of his time in the Senate as the Don Quixote of spending cuts. This may be his best work. If you want to study cocaine and you want to study Japanese quail using cocaine, and you want to know if they're more sexually promiscuous, do you know how you get approval for your funding? You call up your other buddies that study cocaine and animals, and you say, hey, I've got this great new study. Would you guys like to join in it and, and be my peer review committee? So it's actually the ridiculous studies that we discover, they're being voted on by people who are selected by the people doing the studies. 
when we see such waste, some get despondent, sad. Can we ever fix this? Some get angry. Hunter Biden just wants to know where he can find one of those coked up quails. But some of the spending isn't just wasteful, it's dangerous. Like the FBI should not get a brand spanking new $325 million Washington DC based headquarters. It would be bigger than the Pentagon, despite the FBI having about 2% the manpower of our military. Now the Pentagon is the largest building in the world. So while the FBI suffers from many legal and ethical deficiencies, got to give them this, they don't lack for visions of grandeur. FBI whistleblower Garrett O'Boyle will join me tonight to expose targeting of conservative Americans by the most powerful law enforcement tools known to man. You will not believe it, and you certainly won't want to fund it. Joining us now is former Trump senior economic advisor and author of Trump Anomics, Stephen Moore. Stephen, thanks so much for joining me this evening. Is any reduction in spending enough for Kevin McCarthy to claim victory in these negotiations? As President Biden says, we're closing in on a deal. Matt, great to be with you. Thanks so much for the kind words. And I loved your opening monologue. I agreed with every single word of it, except for the fact that Joe Manchin, I mean, he just got schooled. He went to school. He was so played by Joe Biden. And I don't understand how that happened. And for him to now say, well, gee, I didn't know this was going to happen. It was so predictable. So you are so right that the, the virus in America today is overspending. It's not COVID. It is the massive trillions and trillions of dollars that were added to the budget and to the debt by Joe Biden. And I think that the Republicans need to get, uh, you know, the, you need to get almost everything you have in that package you guys passed in the House, in my opinion, Matt. I, I don't think we should uh, negotiate too much away. Look, there has to be some negotiation, but I, I think the package that you all passed in the House, I think, was a was a good package. It has a lot of, you know, work requirements. It has drilling, you know, so we can, you know, become energy independent. So, so let has, me ask you about um, that, Stephen. Yeah, there, there are two real features of this negotiation. One is the overall spending limit. I think Car McCarthy has staked out the ground that if he reduces spending at all, that would be the first time ever that spending was reduced by a United States Congress. But there are also these policy features. You talked about energy right. and drilling, regulatory reform. I want to get your take specifically on these work requirements. Democrats have said that's a red line. Now I'm hearing that work requirements will likely be part of the deal. How significant is this to drive economic growth? Well, again, it depends on what kind of work requirements, because frankly, uh, you know, I'm very much in favor of work requirements. I worked in 1996 and 1997 when we passed welfare reform back when Bill Clinton was president. It was a huge success for the American economy. We moved people off of welfare into work. Their incomes went up. Poverty went down. It was a huge success. Obama and Biden have completely eviscerated those work requirements. But Matt, as I read that bill, and maybe you know something I don't, but it only requires 20 hours a week of working. I don't know about you, Matt. I'm working a lot more than 20 hours a week. I think you are. I think most people are watching this show. Are, well, are you only working 20 hours a week, Matt? Uh, you know what's interesting? It was actually some of the New York Republicans who didn't want the work 
hours per week to be more rigorous. And I thought, you know what, come down to the floor and vote against that, New Yorker. Like if it was the Californians that said work less, I probably could have bought that. But the New Yorkers, that was tough to hear. Want to get your take on the news that broke this morning. According to the April report, U.S. inflation has accelerated by 4.7 percent from just a year ago. What does this mean for American families? It means we're not out of the inflation fix. And thank you for reminding Americans about all of the people like Janet Yellen and Joe Biden and all his spokesmen on all the Democrats who said that inflation was going to be transitory. Then we had 22 months of uh, record inflation. By the way, in 20 of the last 22 months, Matt, inflation has outpaced people's income. So the increase in prices is outpacing the increase in your income and your paycheck. And what does that mean, Matt? It means for 20 of the last 22 months, the American workers are getting shafted. They're getting poor. This is a president who is shrinking Americans' paychecks. Let's talk Target. Looks like they're caught in a Bud Light type situation, uh, losing billions of dollars in value with their tuck-friendly swimsuits. Isn't that quaint? You know, Stephen, do you think at some point there are going to be derivative suits that shareholders bring against these companies that embrace wokeness and do a tremendous amount of damage to their stock price? Well, you know, it's the stupidity of this. And, and look, I mean, you know, a private company can do whatever they want to. But when you're losing 30 or 40 percent of your sales and look, I'm not going to go to Target. I'm not going to buy a Bud Light. And, you know, it's a free country. They can do whatever they want. But you know what? We have freedom, too, don't we, Matt? We can choose as consumers Amen. what we want to buy. And, and so, you know, I want to congratulate nothing wrong who basically yeah. made a statement here to corporate America that we're not going to take all this woke ESG crap. Absolutely. Folks can vote with their dollars. Steve Moore, economic advisor to President Trump. Thanks for joining us. Make sure you hold Attorney firm. General. Get a good deal. <laughs> Thank you. Deal. Attorney General Ken Paxton will be joining us right after the break. You won't want to miss it exclusively here on Newsmax. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton has held the Lone Star State's top legal job since 2014. Some call him the most effective attorney general in America. Others, a criminal deserving removal from office. He has a national reputation for organizing Republican attorneys general to push back against federal flaws and follies and failures. Some say his brash style has made Paxton a national target of Democrats and establishment Republicans. Paxton again made national news when he sued the Biden administration to stop their reckless parole of illegal immigrants in our country. When the Texas Children's Hospital began mutilating minors with gender reassignment surgeries, Paxton took action. Tonight, he faces new calls for his impeachment, even by fellow Republicans in the state house. State lawmakers have been investigating Paxton in secret since March. Yesterday, the House General Investigating Committee voted unanimously to recommend impeachment, alleging misconduct and lawbreaking. But here's the problem for those seeking Paxton's ouster. He just keeps winning elections. Ken Paxton was initially indicted for securities fraud and then reelected in 2018 without a single Republican opponent. Despite being under an unresolved and meandering federal investigation for years, seemingly going nowhere, Ken Paxton beat George Prescott Bush 
in sequential primary and runoff elections. And the margins of those victories were not even close. So what do state lawmakers now know that justifies substituting their judgment for that of the voters? Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton joins us now with his exclusive reaction. General Paxton, we are used to seeing impeachment as a partisan tool used by one party against another, but all three Republicans on your panel voted to recommend impeachment against you. What have you done to anger these establishment liberal Republicans? Look, I've angered ever, ever since I was in the Texas House. I ended up running against Joe Strauss, who was a Republican speaker. And, uh, you know, when you expose what these liberal Republicans do, which is basically cut deals with liberal Democrats, they get really angry. The, the last thing they want is somebody around like me who exposes what they do. And I, I've done that with uh, Phelan. They, they were trying to they tried to sneak through legislation uh, two years ago where they were reducing the penalty for illegal voting, where I would now have to prove that they knew the law when they did it, which meant no prosecutions. We caught them. We exposed it. Those are the types of things that Phelan finds infuriating. And unfortunately for him, we caught him and we exposed it despite the fact that he's a Republican. So we are now in a process where every Republican in the state house is going to have to go on record regarding this recommended impeachment. Are you confident that you have the votes to block an impeachment by the Texas state house? Uh, no, they, this has been done. I, I think they decided they thought I was going to lose my election to Bush and, uh, it, they became very disturbed when I won, and they, they concocted this plan, I think, months and months ago, maybe right after my reelection, thinking that the voters just were not, not smart enough to figure this out. They're going to fix it. And they started working on this about four months ago in secret. I literally first heard about this on Tuesday, where they announced they, were, they subpoenaed us. On Wednesday, they announced an investigation. On Thursday, they announced impeachment. And now on Saturday... The impeachment is going forward. The members haven't seen all the information. They haven't allowed us to participate. We have uh, lots of information that would change the results of their investigation. They have refused to let us testify. They have refused to let us give them information. They have refused to allow us to correct things that, that, that even they know are wrong. And that's the process we're in. They want this done because the voters, in their opinion, didn't weren't smart enough to get it right, and they're going to fix it. So what about the Senate? If you are not confident about the results in the House, potentially there would be a trial in the Senate. As I understand, I believe your wife would be one of your jurors. You think over there you would fare better? Uh, look, I have, a lot, I have a lot more confidence in, in the Senate. Lieutenant Governor is a, is, a, is a great Republican. He's done a good job uh, trying to get legislation out this session. Unfortunately, the House, the Speaker, has killed much of our great legislation and now they're wasting time on this instead of passing some of the great legislation from the Senate. So, yes, I, I mean, I, there's, there's always issues when you're in politics because not every Republican is conservative. And, and some of the more moderate senators may not be supportive as well. But that's OK. I think we're in we, we at least feel like we'll have a fair shot to present evidence and, and expose the, the, the lies of the, the House. So the political campaigns run against you by both Republicans and Democrats have relied almost exclusively on references to investigations of you. Is there anything in this Texas legislative report that is new or otherwise wasn't litigated during the pendency of the campaign where voters sent you back to work? Yeah, so there's a statute in Texas which, which they are not following. This is about uh, illegal impeachment. Uh, there's a, the statute says that if things were if, if there were complaints prior to the election, if there were issues prior to the election, you can't bring an impeachment on issues that occurred, whether true or false, uh, before the election. Nineteen of the twenty 
uh, in this and this complaint were from issues related to the election. The second was related to my settlement authority. And they're they're saying that I deserve to be impeached because I, I settled a case which required that the legislature approve the money. They have to actually fund so, so it. So let me ask you this. Let me let me ask you this, General. If, if those are powers of the attorney general's office, is there anything that you would apologize for, that you regret, or that you would say you did wrong? Or are you just ready to no, take this on and, every, and go fight in the everything, everything that they have in there, we did because we thought it was the right thing to do. And I'm not saying that, you know, somebody couldn't have a disagreement about how we handled one thing or another. But overall, I'm pretty pleased with the, how this office is run over the term that I've been in here. No one runs any, everything perfectly. There's no perfect attorney general that's run every office. You know, we all have to deal with we have to deal with 4,200 employees, 38,000 cases. Have we made every perfect decision? No. Have we made mistakes? Yes. But I feel very good about the things that they brought up. I wouldn't change them. The top lawman in the Lone Star State, Ken Paxton. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank when you. When we have come back, we'll talk. When we come back, we'll talk to one of the brave FBI whistleblowers who was suspended from the Bureau for calling out the corruption that they observed. Real heroes. Real conflict. Real threats. Real heart. Now, there's a place America gets its news. No agenda. Just the facts. Newsmax. Real news for real people. Following 9-11, Congress gave the national security apparatus these exquisite, unprecedented authorities to collect intelligence against those who would do America harm. Of course, at the time, lawmakers were laser focused on Islamic violent extremism, nurtured abroad and then dangerous to our homeland. We wanted to know exactly what the enemy was doing in those godforsaken Central Asian caves. We wanted to confuse their operations and kill their operatives, and for good reason. But what has happened in the two decades since is troubling. We never envisioned that the Patriot Act would be used against American patriots here at home, but it has been. We never thought that the spying authorities we aimed at the Taliban would be retargeted and recalibrated to a Catholic mass in Richmond, Virginia, but we saw the risk of that happening too. America's national security apparatus has fallen victim to political capture. I've seen it. And as a result, Americans have been targeted unfairly. Traditional Catholics, parents at school board meetings, even people who support the Second Amendment or restricted immigration in their social media posts. If you tweet, build the wall, maybe your account gets flagged. Truth, your support for gun rights, and you may be labeled a domestic violent extremist. Post a picture of the Betsy Ross flag. You might even be suspected of trying to overthrow the government. But here's the good news. Brave FBI whistleblowers have stepped forward. The bad news? The FBI has made an example of them and made their life hell. Here's suspended FBI special agent Garrett O'Boyle before the House Judiciary Committee. When citizens in this country get to a point where they can call the most powerful law enforcement agency in the world on their neighbor just because they disagree with them, that is chilling to the First Amendment rights of the people who are getting the FBI called on them. The FBI will crush you. This government will crush you and your family if you try to expose the truth about things that they are doing that are wrong. 
And we are all examples of that. FBI whistleblower Garrett O'Boyle joins us now. Garrett, thank you for your service to our country, for your bravery. When you say the FBI will crush you, who are you talking about? Is it the agents who run our field offices, or are you specifically talking about senior leadership? Congressman, thank you for having me. You know, I think it starts at the top, and it trickles down from there. I mentioned at the end of my testimony on Thursday that I was open to current employees of the FBI reaching out to me uh, if they needed to. And that has already begun to happen. And there are more tales that hopefully will come out soon about this type of retaliation that has happened to me, that has happened to Steve Friend, that has happened to Marcus Allen. There are still good people in the FBI, and they are getting crushed, just like I did, as we speak. Wow, Garrett, you're breaking big news here. And I remember following your very courageous testimony. We had a moment in the House Judiciary Committee planning room where I said, you know, what you all did here today will inspire others. You have paved the way for people of goodwill and good faith to step forward, not because they hate the FBI, but because they want to rescue the FBI from this political capture. In the deposition you provided, you talked about the role of your faith in compelling you to come forward. Speak a little bit about that. Yes, thank you for giving me that opportunity. That, that for me, is the, the cornerstone. It's the cornerstone of my life. And at once, you know, the Christian faith once was a cornerstone of this nation. And I'm all for the First Amendment and people practicing whatever religion they want. That's one of the great things of this country. Now, that being said, I'm firm in my faith and firm that it is the one true faith. And I was on this path seeing the things I saw inside the agency where I said, not only are these things against America and against Americans and against my constitutional oath, they're also against my God. And when it comes to that for me, I can't knowingly go forward sinning against God and, and America, my colleagues and the American people, and just act like there's there's nothing wrong because I'm getting my paycheck direct deposited into my account every two weeks. That That just simply is not okay. It is indeed inspiring. Now, in the face of your demonstration of this patriotism, Democrat politicians have demonized you for speaking out. Take a listen. Y'all have employment grievances. Um, that doesn't make you whistleblowers. As part of their mission, my colleagues have brought in these former agents, men who lost their security clearances because they were a threat to our national security. These are not whistleblowers. They've been determined by the agency not to be whistleblowers. Are you deciding that they're whistleblowers? The allegations that we are dealing with here today and the reason why whether or not people are whistleblowers matters or your credibility matters is you're just the three individuals three people in an organization of tens of thousands. You provided protected disclosures to Congress pursuant to federal law. We investigated those claims and determined that there was a lot of concern about deviation from policy and constitutional practices. Garrett, what is your reaction to Democrats trying to discredit you rather than working together in a bipartisan way to fix the FBI? You know, it, it really is sickening because, you know, in my deposition, I said this is not a partisan issue. It should not be. It must not be a partisan issue. Yet they get up there and grandstand and attack me and the other whistleblowers as if we're not whistleblowers when the law is very clear. 5 U.S.C. 7211 gives us federal employees a right to come to Congress. And to be protected as a whistleblower, you have to have a reasonable belief. 
And when all these allegations coming from people like me with receipts almost every single time, then it's just hard for me to to sit there and take that type of uh, derision from those Congress people who sit on the very subcommittee that is supposed to investigate the weaponization of government, but they sit up there weaponized against us. It, it, it really is an Orwellian atmosphere that we're in. Well, they were trying to send a message. They were trying to smear you and others in the hopes that that would chill people coming forward. I think you did so well, Steve Friend, Marcus Allen, that other people feel in their heart that burning desire to tell the truth. And we certainly hope that they do. As you sit here today, uh, a suspended FBI agent, someone who's really been tortured by the abuse of the uh, the clearance, security clearance process. What do you think is the most important reform that the FBI needs to undergo? When it comes to that particular issue, it's the adjudicative guidelines. They are enacted in an entirely arbitrary manner. So that's what they use to strip our clearances. So I think the, the preeminent example is the 51 intelligence community um, personnel who signed on to that letter regarding the Hunter Biden laptop. As far as I know, all 51 of them still have their security clearance, yet they lied. They were wrong. So why do they still get to have their security clearances and uh, participate in intelligence community gatherings and galas and employment where then people like myself, the FBI just yanks it uh, on an arbitrary reason? No, it's totally it's totally unfair. And you know what? In the coming week, I'm going to be introducing legislation to provide full back pay to every one of the whistleblowers who have come forward to the House Judiciary Committee and have been unfairly treated as a consequence of the protected information that they have shared. You deserve that back pay. You're a patriot. Garrett O'Boyle, thank you so much for joining us tonight and sharing your insights with us. Thank you for having me, Congressman. All eyes are on 2024, and what a week it's been, to say the least, with a new frontrunner uh, getting into the race, someone near the head of the field. We'll talk about it with Congressman Chip Roy after the break. Newsmax. Shoots it straight. No talking down to me. Don't tell me how to think. Don't tell me how to think. Don't tell me how to think. I trust Newsmax. Newsmax. They don't tell me how to think. They let me decide. Real news for real people. This week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis revealed the worst kept secret in American politics. He's running for president. I served on the House Judiciary Committee with then Congressman Ron DeSantis. I was his most prominent campaign surrogate when he initially ran for governor. He even selected me to lead his transition team when he won that election. But like many of the people who like Ron DeSantis and have worked closely with him, I'm supporting President Trump's candidacy. Now, one of the best things that Ron DeSantis has going for him is the support of my good friend, Congressman Chip Roy of Texas. Congressman Roy is a thought leader in the House Freedom Caucus. He previously served as Senator Ted Cruz's chief of staff, and he is now perhaps the most prominent congressional supporter of the Ron DeSantis for President campaign, and he joins me now. Chip, let's start with the DeSantis Twitter launch. What grade would you give the big Twitter space with Elon? Great to be on, Matt. Yeah, first of all, let me just say, like Matt and I agree on a whole lot. The the uh, debt ceiling uh, intro you just had, it's critically important that we fight that. I mean, what on earth are we going to do raising the debt ceiling $4 trillion? And, but look, this is one of the things that I think is um, central to the next presidential selection. Uh, what we're seeing right now is obviously a battle between uh, Governor DeSantis and 
uh, President Trump uh, to see who will get the nomination. But both of them will be formidable, right? Both of them will be uh, great leaders for our party. But the question is, what are we going to actually get in the White House in 2024? And I, I frankly want somebody who will be there for eight years. I want somebody who can actually go take on the entirety of this administrative state for a full eight-year term. In terms of the launch, look, Governor DeSantis in the Twitter spaces was taking on the corporate establishment, the corporate media establishment, which Newsmax, which you're on right now, which I'm on right now, is a part of taking on. Uh, the Twitter spaces deal had 300,000 people that were a part of it right at the, at the time the governor was on. It had almost a million. They kind of broke it for a few minutes. But at the end of the day, they had 25 million impressions. They raised $8 million in a single day. There's a massive amount of enthusiasm. And he's going to head to Iowa with a tailwind next week. And I think he's going to be in a good spot. A lot of money. President Trump's used to running these races with less. You talk about that corporate capture that you and I fight against in Washington each and every day. Does it worry you that a lot of the billionaire donors who supported Jeb Bush, who often embraced the globalist policies of the Uniparty, does Ron DeSantis's alliance and adherence to some of their worldviews concern you as a as a pretty staunch uh, fighter for the populist vision that we have for the country? Yeah, you and I both know that the support comes from the people, that none of that stuff's going to matter in Iowa when you go around and you're shaking hands in, you know, a coffee shop or in a diner in Iowa or New Hampshire. And I know Governor DeSantis has already been there. He'll be there next week. That's where you win the minds and the hearts of voters. And look, let's be honest, uh, no more so than I'm worried that somehow Donald Trump is a creature of the establishment because he cut a lousy deal with Paul Ryan on a crappy immigration bill in 2018, which you and I both know was true. Governor DeSantis was on the other side of that. It can, it can be simultaneously true that Donald Trump was great about fighting for a wall and return to Mexico and using Title 42, but also that he did some stupid things trying to cut a deal with Paul Ryan on a crappy immigration bill, which, which Ron DeSantis yeah, opposed. But so, Chip, look, but Chip, I, Chip, I, I think that people are going to judge... I think people are going to judge Trump by the results. He was able to successfully put downward pressure on the illegal immigration that is destroying Texas, really destroying the entire country. You talk about Iowa and New Hampshire. Leave me with this thought. What is the first state that Ron DeSantis has to win? Because as I survey the field, I think maybe the only state where he's in the lead or not out of the lead by double digits might be California. If Ron DeSantis doesn't win Iowa, doesn't win New Hampshire, uh, what's the first state he wins? Well, look, he's, I think he's going to do very well in Iowa. I think he'll do very well in New Hampshire. And frankly, I think he might do very well in South Carolina, particularly if the South Carolinians uh, see the futility of their mission uh, in terms of uh, Governor uh, Nikki Haley and, and Senator Tim Scott. I think that uh, Ron DeSantis will be in good shape in all three of those states. And look, let's be clear. You know, I think if you look at how things are going to perform in a year, that's very different than right now. You, whoever's at the top of the polls right now, that always changes in presidential politics. Governor DeSantis is hitting I the ground I don't know, running. man. I don't know, Chip. I think President Trump has a pretty high floor, and the shade you throw at the viability of the South Carolinians is noted. Thank you for your fight in Congress. Thanks for being my friend. Thank you to Congressman Chip Roy for joining us. God bless you. Take care. Thanks. With all this debt ceiling talk, it seems like the Democrats have adopted a new interesting talking point. I will explain after the break. Don't go anywhere. For 97 days, President Biden refused to even meet with Speaker McCarthy to negotiate the debt limit. Now, as a result, the American people are now holding Joe Biden responsible for the chaotic state of play. So in what seems to be a desperate, albeit focused effort, 
Democrats have zeroed in on me. Republicans are not negotiating at all. They, in fact, our Republican Matt Gates expressed in a party meeting today that this is, in fact, a hostage situation. Default on our debt and trigger a painful recession. Those are the two options that House Republicans see as the only viable paths forward. Matt Gates's words. They're saying the quiet thing out loud, referring to the full faith and credit of the United States as a hostage. But I, I do want to be clear here. Averting default is the responsibility of every single member of Congress. You just know that Karine Jean-Pierre did not have as her A strategy for that day, pulling a Matt Gates quote. And the fact that the White House is obsessed with me with their tweets and their breathless statements, it is the clearest sign yet that things are going horribly for them. Joining me to discuss the politics of the debt limit standoff is Newsmax political analyst Mark Halperin. Mark, thanks for joining us. Who is winning the debt limit politics today? Congressman, good to see you. Congressman, guest host, and lightning rod. It's pretty good. Uh, all in, <laughs> all in one. I'm, look. Speaker McCarthy, with the help of you and others, has gotten the Republicans to a stronger position on the debt ceiling controversy, budget negotiations, than I recall any Republican uh, party being. Uh, he's got the support of the Senate Republicans. He's got the support of the conference. He has passed that bill through the House and is in a really strong position. And you see it in the press coverage. And I think part of why the Democrats are singling you out is because they're discombobulated. They're not used to a semi-level playing field in these fights. They're used to being treated with the way Nancy Pelosi got treated, with extra special coverage. And so they find themselves, I think, negotiating from a greater position of weakness than they expected. And that's, I think, a manifestation of that is coming after you. Uh, I have heard from my sources in the last few moments that work requirements will be a part of this deal. How badly does that damage Joe Biden with the squad and other progressive Democrats? Very badly. And, and it, 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 it threatens to throw off the calibration. Um, the, you know, the speaker is going to lose some of your colleagues. I don't know if you're going to vote for the bill or not, but the speaker is going to lose some folks. And he's going to have to count on making that up with Democrats. Let's see what the provisions like. Right. This is a splittable baby. There's some of some parts of the negotiation that would be difficult and kind of a zero sum game. How much how many work requirements? Who does it impact over what frame a period of time? When does it start? There are a lot of variables there. So the, the speaker can say to the conference, I got a victory on this. This was a red line for us and we got it. But let's see if it's done in a way that doesn't uh, cause too many Democrats to freak out. I think it, it will be a breaking point for the squad, but let's see how many Democrats can't stomach that to the extent that they vote against the bill. Also issues on the right. We heard Stephen Moore on the program earlier say that McCarthy should hold the line and not negotiate at all off of the limit save grow plan. But if McCarthy gets work requirements, if he gets any reduction in spending, if he gets any regulatory or energy reform, 
He could probably argue to me and to a lot of other House conservatives that it is, in fact, the best deal any Republican speaker has gotten out of a Democrat president over a debt limit negotiation, perhaps even more than we got out of President Trump. Uh, my suspicion is that that will give McCarthy plenty of cover on the right. And, you know, we might not be able to vote for it, but that's a different thing than wanting to blow the place up and call for McCarthy's head. My suspicion is this will be about 140 to 160 uh, Republicans with a coalition of about 80 to 100 Democrats. And if he can get that many Democrats to vote for work requirements and spending cuts, I would say maybe all the work we did in January gave us the best version of Kevin McCarthy. What do you think? I think maybe you should be the in charge of the bipartisan whip operation because it's going to take that. I like your numbers. I think your numbers of the breakdown uh, sound good to me, sound like that's where it's headed. But as you know, this is fragile. The speaker, thanks to you and others, committed to putting this out there for 72 days or 72 hours. And over that time, let's see if, if you can hold together. It is it is interesting. A guy who was seen as a weak speaker because of the efforts of you and others is going to come out of this. If the deal's anything like you just described, and as we think it will be, he's going to come out of this with the conference pretty united. And I think you'll see people who will vote no, maybe even heck no, but they're not going to try to get rid of the speaker. And they're going to praise him, I think, in a lot of cases to say, I can't vote for this bill, but he did a good job. I don't think you're going to see that kind of unity on the Democratic side. I think the Democratic House Conference Caucus is going to come out of this pretty divided. Because remember, Joe Biden said he wouldn't even negotiate. Oh, yeah. And now he's negotiating <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. for a position of weakness. They are absolutely hair on fire in the Democratic Caucus. I can't say I hate that. Mark Halperin, thank you so much for your insights and analysis. Memorial Day weekend is finally here. We'll tell you how one company is seeing it as a grifting opportunity to spoil all the fun right back after the break. It's true. I am an America first, liberty loving Latino. That's why I know this country is worth fighting for. That's why the Chris Salcedo Show will always tell you the truth. The Chris Salcedo Show, for the news you need to know. Through red flag laws, the government incentivizes these tattle on your neighbor policies. And now corporate America wants in on the grift. Airbnb wants you to know about their new hotline to tell on anyone throwing a Memorial Day weekend party in your hood. Crowdsourcing corporate enforcement policies. It's brilliant if not a little creepy. So if you hear someone barbecuing rambunctiously, call the Karen Airbnb hotline, maybe even ask to speak to the manager. The RoomShare app has had a global party ban since 2020. To me, global party ban sounds more like a sequel to Footloose than it does an inviting business slogan. That's all we have tonight, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Don't worry, Greg will be back next week. Have a wonderful, safe, and reflective Memorial Day weekend.